Turn, if you would, to the Canons of Dort found in the, either the Book of Forms and Prayers on page 279 or the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, page 912. Canons of Dort, we're going to be looking at the fifth head of doctrine or reading the fifth head of doctrine, Article 4 and 7, which speaks about uh, the reality of ongoing sin even in the believer's life and therefore the ongoing need for repentance, which God works by His grace in His people. So Article 4, although that power of God strengthening and preserving true believers in grace is more than a match for the flesh, yet those converted are not always so activated and motivated by God that in certain specific actions they can not by their own fault depart from the leading of grace, be led astray by the desires of the flesh, and give in to them. For this reason, they must constantly watch and pray that they may not be led into temptations. When they fail to do this, not only can they be carried away by the flesh, the world, and Satan into sins, even serious and outrageous ones, but also by God's just permission, they sometimes are so carried away. Witness the sad cases described in Scripture of David, Peter, and other saints falling into sins. And then Article 7, for in the first place, God preserves in those saints when they fall his imperishable seed from which they have been born again, lest it perish or be dislodged. Secondly, by his word and spirit, he certainly and effectively renews them to repentance so that they have a heartfelt and godly sorrow for the sins they have committed, seek and obtain through faith and with a contrite heart forgiveness in the blood of the mediator, experience again the grace of a reconciled God, through faith adore his mercies, and from then on more eagerly work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And then if you turn in the word of God to uh, the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, second letter, chapter 7, page 1,229, 1,229, the reading is from verse 2 to 16. 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 7, beginning at verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. 
For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that your letter, that, for, sorry, beginning of verse 8 again. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, What zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Thus far the reading of God's Word. We know from our own experience and from the Scriptures of God that even Christians continue to sin as long as they are in this world. And this sin shows up in a variety of ways. Sometimes our sin is as Our confession says serious and outrageous public sins. Sometimes they are sins that are of a more respectable character that everyone just accepts as normal for the Christian. Sometimes no one sees the sins because they're sins of the heart. And though they're not obvious to anyone else, they're painfully obvious to us. And because we remain sinners as long as we are in this life, we must remain repenters. Repentance is always the right, the only right response to sin of whatever kind, serious and outrageous, respectable, or less obvious to others. That's why Martin Luther had it nailed rightly when he said as his first of 95 theses, when our Lord Jesus Christ said to repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. And this squares with what Scripture itself says. Remember how the Lord Jesus, after his resurrection, met with his disciples at the end of Luke 24. And he gave them the marching orders, and he said to them that forgiveness of sins and repentance must be preached to all nations in his name. The call to repentance is a clarion call 
of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what is repentance? It's a word that is often bandied about, but what does repentance look like? What do we feel when we're repentant? What do we think when we're dealing with our sin? How does repentance evidence itself in the life of a Christian believer? Well, that's what we want to look at this evening from 2 Corinthians 7. First, a bit of the background to our particular passage. There is a lot of debate about this passage, but I think that what is happening here is that the Apostle Paul had written in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthians that they were to deal radically with sin that was in their midst. There was a man who was having an incestuous relationship with his father's wife, and the congregation was not dealing with it in any way. It actually became a matter of pride. We believe in the gospel, and the gospel is setting us free from all condemnation. And so they were permitting this man to continue to live the way that he was in this godless, unbiblical manner. And Paul said to them, you need to deal with this man. You need to expel this man from the congregation, lest the wrath of God come upon the whole congregation. And evidently, the Corinthian Christians refused to do that. And this refusal to follow the counsel of Christ's ambassador, the Apostle Paul, created a rift in the relationship between Paul and these Corinthian Christians. He was their father in the faith. It was through them that they had come out of darkness and into light. It was through him and his ministry that they had come to liberty in Jesus Christ. And now they had been acting arrogantly and had been rejecting the counsel of Christ's apostle. That's why the passage begins, the one that we read, where Paul says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. So not only were they disregarding apostolic injunctions, but they were speaking evil of Paul and thinking evil of him and stiff-arming him and resisting his approach. And so Paul sends Titus to them. And Titus spent some time with the Corinthian Christians, came back to Paul, and reported the reception that he had amongst them. And what he tells Paul, which makes Paul absolutely thrilled, is that these Corinthian Christians were repentant. They had turned from the way they were responding both to Paul's injunctions and to Paul's person, and they were now repentant for their sin. So what made Paul so clear that they were repentant? So that he was rejoicing, so that he was thrilled, so that he was delighted, so that as he says, I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. What was it about the Corinthian response of repentance that made Paul so grateful to God? Or to put the question another way, for our sakes, what is it about their actions that guide us in our thinking through what repentance is? 
And that's what we want to do this evening. The first thing to notice is that repentance is birthed in grief. I can point this out to you in verse 7, for instance, where the Apostle Paul says, when Titus came back, he told us of your mourning, your lamentation. And then in verse 8, Paul says, he made them grieve with his letter. And I see that my letter grieved you. And then in verse 9, he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance, for you felt a godly grief. And then speaks in verse 10 of a godly grief that produces repentance. And so this is the first thing to understand about repentance. It's birth. It has its beginning in grief, in sorrow, and in lamentation. And then Paul is careful to distinguish the kinds of grief that there is. There can be the kinds of grief that there are. There can be worldly grief which he speaks about at the end of verse 11, a worldly grief that produces death. Now, what is it about worldly grief that makes it worldly over against godly? And the answer to that is is that worldly grief is predominantly self-centered. It thinks of sin not in relation to God, but it thinks of sin in relation to oneself. The thing that bothers me about my sin those who have worldly grief says, say, the thing that bothers me about my sin is the repercussions for my life, what it does for my reputation, the hardships and difficulties that it brings across my path. That's what makes me so sad about my sin. So that, for instance, Esau is a classic example of a man who wept tears. He had great sorrow because he had given up the birthright. But his sorrow was because of the implications of giving up the birthright for himself. He had squandered this gift of God, and he had ruined his own fortunes. It wasn't because he had rejected God's gift of the birthright. It was because of the implications for his own life. And when an individual has worldly grief... It evidences itself in self-justification, or it blames other people, or it gets angry with those who have the audacity to point out your sin. Self-centered grief is worldly grief, and it produces death. It does not bring about the grace of God then what is it about godly grief that these Corinthians evidently had? Because Paul says, you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. He's saying, I did cause you sorrow, but it was the right kind of sorrow so that it worked blessing to you rather than loss. It produces life rather than death. Well, what is it about godly grief that makes it godly? And the answer there is, again, quite obvious. It is God-centered. It focuses on sin, not simply in relation to myself or into the harm that I cause other people, but ultimately and primarily because sin is against God, against His holiness, against His righteousness. It is to call into question His wisdom, His goodness, His purity, 
The classic illustration of a godly grief is found in Psalm 51 after David had been convinced of his sin with Bathsheba. And he cries out to God. He says, God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, he wasn't, he wasn't negating the, the, the reality of his sin against Bathsheba and against uh, Bathsheba's husband Uriah and against the nation, against his other uh, wife and families. It wasn't that he was blind to the implications and the repercussions of his sin, not only for his family and others, but also for himself. But he understood what sin was. He understood that it was against God and that he himself had not only sinned, but that he was sinful, that he was from birth conceived and born in sin. It was that that caused him so much consternation and sadness. That's why there was so much lament. And because he recognized his own complicity in this sin, that the problem was not everyone else, but the problem was he himself, he cries out to the Lord to have mercy, to blot out his transgressions, to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity, to cleanse him from his sin, and to do so not because I have a right to any of it, but because of your mercies, your kindness, your grace, your steadfast love, O Lord. And this is what Paul had seen in the testimony of Titus regarding the Corinthian Christians. Their grief was Godward. They had a godly grief because of their sins. And then Paul goes on to say that this godly grief, this is in verse 10, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So this isn't simply a a lamentation, a mourning, a sadness. It's a sadness that is productive. You you know how sometimes... uh, when uh, things become a little bit overwhelming for you and you think everything is against you, nobody loves you, everyone hates you, God is against you, you can weep, you can be sad, but it's a self-pitying sadness that produces nothing except creates a downward spiral of increasing sadness and grief. Well, that wasn't the case. It was a godly grief that had an effect in their lives. Remember how John the baptizer had said to the Pharisees who had come for them, to him rather, for baptism. He called them to repentance, to flee from the wrath to come, and to show fruit of repentance, to demonstrate their repentance. And Paul says, that's what you Corinthians have done in spades. It's so clear that you are repentant, because I can see it in three different ways. First of all, he says, your repentance or your grief produced a repentance, which is a change of the mind. This is technically what repentance is. It's from the Greek word metanoia, which means a change of mind. So that repentance, in the first place, thinks properly, thinks properly about God, about sin, about myself, about the law of God, about forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It recognizes that the problem is not God, the problem is me. The problem is not his strictness, the problem is my misbehavior. The problem is thought through 
carefully, and the proper conclusions are reached. There's a change of mind about God, about self, about sin, about mercy. This is classically demonstrated in the prodigal son. Remember, he went off on his own, squandered all his father's wealth. And when he came to himself, that's the words that Jesus uses in Luke 15, when he came to himself, well, then everything became clear to him. He understood that his situation compared with the the servants in his father's house was, was a disaster. The servants in his father's house had nothing to be concerned about because they were taken care of. Well, here I am wishing to eat the husks that the pigs were eating. He came to himself, and then he thought properly about his situation and about his father. This is what I will do. I will go to my father and say his thinking was rearranged. That's the first thing that God does. There's no more excuses. There's no more blame shifting. There's no more covering over the reality, but it's coming face to face with the truth of what you have done and thinking God's thoughts after him. In fact, you might know that this is what confession, the word for confession is simply this. It's saying the same things that God says about you. So there's a change of mind. But secondly, there's a change of feelings or of emotions or as the old guys used to say, a change of affections. So that repentance is not simply cerebral. It's not simply a matter of the mind. I know that's wrong and I need to stop it. Though it is of the mind, but it's not simply a matter of the mind. Sometimes it can seem like that. I know it's wrong and now I'm going to do right. But it's mechanical. It's cold. It's callous. It's, it's unfeeling. It doesn't, doesn't really affect you. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like it flows through you. It's, it's like you're, you're a, a Teflon man where nothing really sticks. It doesn't really affect you in any way whatsoever. That's not true repentance. Repentance is evidenced by a change of the mind, but also by a change of the feelings, the emotions, or the affections. And you can see this in Paul's description of the Corinthians' repentance. Notice all the affectional, all the emotional language that is here. So, for instance, in verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What earnestness. You used to be unconcerned about the sin that I had pointed out. It it didn't affect you. You were nonchalant about it. But now you're earnest about it. You realize the the seriousness, the weightiness of the matter. You feel the weightiness of this matter. You can no longer treat it as trivial. What earnestness, godly grief, has produced. But then he talks also about what indignation. There was this anger that arose within the hearts of these believers, not necessarily and probably not at all against the person who had sinned or against Paul, but there was an anger against themselves. Again, not an anger because I squandered an opportunity. How stupid was I? I lost out because of my behavior. I lost my family because of my sin. Not that kind of anger, but an anger that recognizes 
what I have done in relation to God. How could I have been such a fool? What was I thinking? How stupid of me to think that I could sin against God with impunity. There was this anger with themselves because of their sin. What earnestness, what indignation, what fear, Paul says. There's something alarming about repentance because you come face to face with the fact that you've been playing with sin, that you've been toying with something so serious, so dangerous. And you think, what, what if God had left me in my sin? What if he had forsaken me? What, what, what alarm that would cause? What terror that would expose me to? And that's the, one of the aspects of repentance, seeing sin and being scared of the power of sin and alarm that you were treating it so lightly. What fear, what earnestness, what indignation, what fear. And then what longing and what zeal. These two words are found in verse 11, but they're also found in verse 7, where Paul talks about how Timothy reported and told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoice still more. So I think what's happening here in this longing and zeal it has to do with their relationship with Paul. And they so badly wanted that relationship to be restored. It bothered them to no end that there was this rift between them and the apostle who had brought them life. It wasn't always that way. They didn't always have this longing for restoration, this zeal to protect the reputation of Paul. They used to think of Paul as as an egomaniac, as uh, narcissistic, telling us what we ought to do. And they disregarded him and discredited him, which was extremely painful to Paul when he had heard of the way they had treated him. But now, that was all gone. Oh, Paul, we would love to be restored. We can't wait to see you. We long to be in your presence again. We want to stand firm on your reputation. We don't want to slander you anymore. We have the zeal, this passion that things be right once more. That was their emotions. It was earnestness, indignation, fear, longing, and zeal. So again, Repentance is not simply a matter of the mind. I know this is wrong. I will do what is right, nor a matter simply of the will. But it is a matter of the heart, which knows what is right and wrong and feels the burden for what is wrong and a passion to do what is right. It is not just cerebral. It is the mind engaged the affections engaged, and then thirdly, repentance is a change of the will. That is, repentance, true godly repentance, always leads to altered behavior. You know how this sometimes can be short-circuited. You've had it in your own life as I've had it in mine. 
I felt the weight, the seriousness of sin. I recognized that it was sin. I felt the seriousness of sin, but I did nothing about it. I made no steps to make any changes. I just went on, and slowly but surely, those feelings, those weightiness just dissipated like the morning dew. Sometimes there's these great plans, grandiose plans. I'm going to change this. I'm going to do this differently. I slandered someone. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to tell people that it's not true, that I shouldn't have said what I said, but, but nothing happens. It doesn't come to fruition. That is not true repentance. It's right in the mind, perhaps right in the heart, but it's only actually right in the mind and the heart. You only are thinking properly and feeling properly when it becomes right in your actions. Remember what our Lord Jesus said regarding sin in Matthew. He says uh, in Matthew 18, he says, temptations are going to come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, well, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is what Jesus is saying. Repentance. True repentance will always lead to action and sometimes quite radical action. You can think of a a young man And I know there are young men who have struggled or who are struggling with pornography or who are not struggling at all with pornography but ought to be struggling with it. And they know it's wrong. And they feel sick about doing it. But there's no follow-through. There's no setting up filters on their phones or on their devices. There's no seeking accountability with someone else. And they can tell you till the cows come home, that they've repented of their sins. But you haven't repented when there's simply a change of mind or of affections. There must be a change of mind, change of affections, and a change of will. Repentance always leads to action. And the thing about Satan, what makes him such a a devilish opponent, is that he wants you to think that if you have one or two, you don't need to have the third. That God sees your grief, your lament, your sorrow. He sees the change of your mind, and he's satisfied with it, and you can be satisfied with it too. Never trust the devil. He's a liar, always has been. Trust rather what God says. That repentance is a change of the mind, a change of the affections, and a change of the will. It leads to actions. And this is what Paul had seen with the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 7, he says uh, in verse 11, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself. So what eagerness to clear yourself. Now, now, Now this doesn't mean that they were self-defensive, that they were trying desperately hard to make it seem like they weren't guilty of what Paul was accusing them of. That's not it. They recognized that they were guilty of what Paul was accusing them of, that they had failed to be what they ought to be, and they were going to make every effort 
so that no one could lay this accusation against them whatever, ever again. Whatever needed to be done to set things right, they were going to do it so that it was beyond, beyond doubt, anyone looking in, it was beyond doubt that they had truly repented, that no one could accuse them of mollycoddling sin or of condoning it in any way or of siding with evil when they should have been resisting it with good. No, they made every effort to clear themselves, to demonstrate, not simply, hey, just take my word for it. I, I felt badly about this. Or, or take my word for it. I, I think you're right, Paul. No, they wanted to make it abundantly clear to everyone looking on that they had really repented of their previous behavior and that no one could accuse them of being soft on sin or in any way disregarding the apostolic injunction that Paul had given to them. There was this eagerness to clear themselves. And then notice what it says at the end, what seal, what punishment. Now that means that these Christians were determined that justice would be done. There was no inclination to sweep it under the carpet and to pretend that it didn't happen or to let people off the hook because after all, they're our friends. No, they were determined to see righteousness done, that whoever was guilty would be reprimanded. And in this particular situation, the call of the Apostle Paul was for church discipline. Whoever was guilty would be reprimanded, and whoever had maligned the reputation of the Apostle Paul and had slandered him would correct that. And Paul looks at these Corinthian and the report that he had received from Titus, and he's absolutely overjoyed because he sees repentance at work in every stage. He says there at the end of verse 11, at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. This is, this is the beauty of repentance. I'm sure you've known this before. When you've, when you've come clean with your sin, when you've acknowledged it as sin, when your heart has been broken, where you've lamented and wept, when you've been earnest about it and angry about it, and then when your life has changed for the better, what liberation you experience. It's the undoing of the deed done. It's like a clean slate. It's restoration. It's, it's wonderful. And Paul says to these Christians, at every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Repentance has done its work. Grief has done its work because it's led to repentance, and repentance leads to salvation. Now, that's the last thing I want to talk about this evening, repentance leading to salvation. You might think, that's not, that doesn't seem right, Paul, because it seems like I'm saved by my repentance, so as long as I think properly, as long as I feel properly, as long as I act properly, I'm saved. What about Christ? Does he have anything at all to do with my repentance? Does he play a role in this? What's any, any role in this whatsoever? And, and of course, Paul would say absolutely. In fact, uh, 
There is no repentance without grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true in a couple of ways. First of all, repentance is a gift. You can't make yourself think properly. Have you ever, have you ever thought, uh, you know, I, I don't like that kind of ice cream, but I'm going to make myself like that kind of ice cream. And so you try, but you can't. You can't change your taste buds. Nor can you change your heart. Nor can you change your mind. Nor can you change your affections. Nor can you change your actions. Repentance is not within you. It's beyond my abilities. It's beyond anyone's abilities. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it so well. Repentance is a grace. It's a gift of God. Remember how Paul talks about how, or it wasn't Paul, it was the Jews hearing about Paul's uh, missionary journeys. They were astonished because God had granted to the Gentiles repentance as well and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is a gift. And the only place where the gifts of God are found are in Jesus, is in Jesus Christ. And so there is no repentance without faith in Jesus Christ. This is why the theologians speak about repentance as two sides of the same coin. There's faith on the one side, there's repentance on the other, because the only place repentance can be found, the only way you can get a repentant mind and heart and will is from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the repository of all grace. In him, every spiritual gift is found. And so if you find yourself struggling with repentance, it's not a matter of beating yourself up all the more and trying harder. It's a matter of coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in your emptiness and brokenness and say, will you not help me, dear Jesus? Will you not give me the gift of repentance? So, so Paul wouldn't say that uh, repentance saves you. Of course not. Christ saves you. And one of the gifts of Christ's salvation is repentance. But there's another connection that I want you to see between repentance and the gospel, and that's this. You will never repent of your sins unless you know that there is forgiveness for those sins. Or to put it again, you will only repent of your sins to the degree that you know there's forgiveness for those sins. So if you think that God is miserly, if he's stingy, you're not going to confess your sins. In fact, you're going to downplay the seriousness of your sins because you never want to be in a position where you out-sin grace because then what do you do? You'd be led to absolute despair. It's like, say, you're, you're driving for a whole day and you come to your host's house and, and you know that they're, they're not that generous. They're a bit stingy. They, they, don't, they don't like sharing. And, they, and whenever they give you something, they make sure you know that they've given it to you. And and so they ask you, are you hungry? And you're thinking, well, I'm not going to get much anyway. So you say, no, not really. Though you're ravenous inside, you say, not really. Because 
Because if you say you're ravenous, it's not going to help anyway, and you've just, you know, you've just put the onus on them to, to be better than they are. But if you're driving all day, you coming to your host, and you know they're generous, and they, they love nothing more than to serve you, and and doesn't matter what time of day it is, they'll take out the frying pan and make you bacon and eggs, doesn't matter, and they say, are you hungry? You say, I'm starving. I haven't eaten all day. I'm ravenous. And you'll say that, you'll confess that to them, because you know that, that their supply will meet your need. So you'll never, you'll never confess your sins unless you know that there's a God in heaven whom you sin against who is generous, who is gracious, who is patient, who is long-suffering, who loves to take your sins and throw them into the depths of the sea, not as a cork so that it floats on top, but as lead so that it sinks to the bottom and is remembered no more. So I want to say to you this evening, my dear brothers and sisters, as I say to myself, wherever sin abounds in your life, go to God through Christ because grace abounds all the more. You can never out-sin the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So don't let your sin keep you from the Savior. It's only knowing the Savior that will enable you to be honest with God and yourself and even with others about your sin. This past week in preparation for the sermon I was reading of, uh, reading uh, a Scottish minister, John Calhoun, late 1700s, early 1800s, he had one pastorate and uh, he spent 46 years in that pastorate. But he says, uh, connecting repentance with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, he, he said that we should be like birds that fly up high and then dart down to get their prey. And I immediately thought of the gannets in uh, Scotland. They're quite large birds. Some of them have a wingspan of, of six feet or so. And I would see them out at sea. Sometimes when we were fishing, we would look for the gannets, and wherever they were, we would go to because the gannets, they were really remarkable birds. They were a delight to watch because uh, they would fly up probably uh, 100 feet in the air. And uh, God had designed them in a wonderful way. Their eyes were, were in the front of their face so that they had binocular vision. And then they had these uh, air sacs uh, in, their, in their head and in their chest uh, to protect them. Because what they would do is they would, they would fly up 100 feet, and then they would look around to see where the fish were, and then they would dive down, and they would hit the water at 100 kilometers an hour. That's why they needed those air sacs. And then they could go real deep to get their prey. And we thought, well, if that's where they're fishing, then that's where I'm going to be fishing as well. But this is what Calhoun was saying. He says, this is what we need to do. We need to fly up to the grace of God in Jesus Christ to recognize the astonishing, never-ending, superabounding love of God displayed in the death of his beloved son 
so that there is a complete remission for all our sins in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fly up high, he says, and then dive down in humiliation before God in repentance for your sins. Never repent without the gospel. You won't anyway, but don't try to. And never think of the gospel so cheaply that you think it means you don't need to repent. Fly up high, dive down in repentance. And may God give us that grace. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God and gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It's so illuminating to us. It's so helpful for our lives. We learn so much and we're convicted so much as well and we hear that there is forgiveness for sinners as sinners. And so we come to you asking that you would give us the grace of repentance and that we would know the joy of sins forgiven in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So bless us, dear Father. You know our hearts, you know our sins, the things we struggle with, the things we aren't struggling with that we ought to struggle with. And we pray that you would work repentance in all of us as we apprehend your mercy in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.